0: All right. Good evening. Good to say that. Today is still May 24th, 2021. I am still your host, Evan George, and welcome to the soft launch of what will be the nightly news program. So I have no idea where to put my TikTok feed. So people over there, that's why I'm looking this way. If you watch me on this way, one of the two or three people that have seen the alert. I'm going to look at you for most of this and how this is going to go is I have some local news stuff to go through, one national, international story. And then depending on my mood, we're going to actually get to some video. And so for the TikTok people, if you want the full effect, you have to follow me on Twitch, YouTube, Facebook. And you will get the full effect, but you'll at least be able to get the first half of the show here. And I'll figure out the the camera angles soon. So the first big story that came out of today's news, this is actually, uh, was first reported on on the 21st, is the spotlight from the Globe's investigation into the Holyoke Soldiers' Home deaths. The 76 veterans that died because of the incompetence of leadership and what looks to be a cover-up of the whole event. And so this article, taken mostly from a report done by Boston attorney Mark Perlstein, I talked about it in the rundown on TikTok and in the morning podcast, if you follow me there, outlined the multiple steps that they took, which ended up resulting in, I think, close to 35-40% of the total residents at this facility dying. And so I'm going to start there and then actually work backwards to talk about the failures that came from Charlie Baker and Secretary Sutters. So again, if you're on uh, TikTok, you're going to miss the visuals. So it looks like this all started with these two individuals, Thyla and Harry, who on March March 15th, that's my birthday, started to experience weakness, fever, chills, coughing, was brought to the attention of the head nurse there. And, let's see, four days later, the aide, so Tyler was the aide for Mr. McDonald's here, Harry, tested positive for COVID-19. From there, March 16th to 18th, another aide is now began to interact with Harry, who was basically the patient zero in this. Which was then the first mistake, was having multiple different nurses, multiple different staff members interact with the same sick patient. Continuing, March 17th and 21st, Harry was then allowed to roam throughout the dementia unit for days and sleep beside three roommates after he was tested for COVID on the 17th. So after he was tested, he was still allowed to walk around and interact with the people at Holyoke. Staff did not move him to a designated negative pressure isolation unit or just quarantine him. And I'm from the North Shore, whoever keeps asking in the chat. Now, on the weekends, people who had worked with Harry, with Mr. McDonald, were then allowed to float throughout the facility and work in other areas of the dementia unit. So now it's slowly spreading. Now on the 24th, an 86-year-old veteran is the first confirmed victim where he spent two days in the same facility next to Harry, who was, again, the patient zero for this. On the 27th, 21 people called out of the day shift feeling sick or fearing that they contracted the virus. Again, we're now in like late March. Everything's popping off in Italy. Everyone knows it's either here or it's coming. More deaths, and now it's described as the fateful decision at 3.27 p.m. March 27th. In response to the staffing crisis, crisis, leadership shut down one of the major sites and transferred its residents, basically doubling the number of veterans who were already in the cramped units. So they did the exact opposite of what you should do, is because of not enough uh, staffing, They then combined the sick and the healthy people together into one unit, and this basically became a death trap, for lack of a better word. The deaths started to continue. and Again, if you're following along, you can see the graphics. Oh my god, are you kidding me? We're going to power through it. Thank you. So on and so forth from this story, resulting again in 76 deaths. So how did this happen? How was this idiot put in charge? And for that, we got to go right to the top because he was a political appointee of Charlie Baker. So that's the first step. And who this guy is just seems to be a complete meathead. So he had no experience in health services, no experience in health management. He was a soldier who, in Iraq, forgot to grab his weapon before heading off into battle, which, as I commented on the podcast, thank God, because that probably saved some people's lives. He was constantly yelling at his staff. They would say he would whine like a toddler, so much to the point that he eventually had to bring into his supervisor's office the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Sutter's, who put him on like an anger management program rather than getting this clear idiot the hell out of there. And despite countless, we'll call them violations, we'll call them alerts, she did not fire him, kept him in charge. Again, this kid who was just connected to a wealthy family in Springfield. Let me see if I can bring that up. Um, just direct quote pops out of me. This was an inside baseball move. You know and I know there was a reason why Bennett got in here. Continuing, it was a political appointment. Bennett's family is very well connected in Springfield. There were a lot of people pushing for Bennett to get this position who were hosting fundraisers for the governor that year. And the reason this was such a coveted position, besides having a salary of... $124,000, is that the Holyoke home, I'm trying to do some quick math, 75, called four hundred four hundred 400 beds, is incredibly affordable. I'm going to see if I can find the exact um, payment structure, but it's like 10% of how much a normal nursing home would cost. And so if you control a nursing home for... People who, again, we read about a dementia unit, elder care. This is highly expensive because of just how we've prioritized healthcare in this country. And you're controlling a massive ward, a massive hospital wing that has 10%, 10 cents on the dollar beds. You're going to be able to attract a lot of people who want to get in your good graces. And it sounds like in other points in this article, he was pressuring some of the staffers to move some people up the line, move some people down the line. I'm looking to see if I can find... Yeah, with a price tag typically topping out at $30 a day, less than 10% of the average cost of a private Massachusetts nursing home, Holyoke's beds were coveted. By admissions, were supposed to be free from political pressure. However, Walsh, Bennett, not Marty... Sometimes ordered shortcuts to favored applicants, current and former staff. I didn't go there to work for a crazy person, says one person who retired because of this guy's leadership. And now the actual parts of the cover-up of from that timeline that I first went over, To me, that that still seems vague. I mean, if anything, he absolutely was just not acting how every person at the time knew you were supposed to be acting and perhaps was just hoping that no one would notice 75 people dying or 76 people dying under his watch. There's even one case of somebody who was reprimanded because they were wearing a mask. So he's being if not criminally, civilly charged for just negligent homicide, I guess. Or negligence at the very minimum. Yeah, so Baker ordered the state of emergency on March 10th. Most of that timeline that I gave you was about two weeks after that. After that, this is funny, Well, they held a 50th birthday party for Bennett Walsh At the fifth room conference room after the state of emergency, where they wore elf style masks, like from the movie Elf, with his face on it. That's insane. He then resigned. And we'll take it from there. So, as I said, this all started, or didn't all start, but... The Globe had a spotlight series on it. And I suspect this will have absolutely zero negative political repercussions for Marty Walsh. Marty Walsh, forgive me. Charlie Baker. He's way too popular, and this will be... Blamed on an incompetent hire that everyone does. He hires hundreds of people. How could he have known? Most people don't know who Sutters is. The people that do are going to say that she did a fantastic job dealing with COVID, and that'll be that. The only other local story that I wanted to cover, I'm going to do the national one too, because this is just a soft launch, so I get to have fun while very few people are watching. And that carryover? Yes, it did. And this is about the toxins that are being found in the water here in Massachusetts. It begins with a story from Wayland, but since Massachusetts enacted new safety regulations last fall, more communities have found elevated levels of toxic chemicals known as PFAS in their drinking water. And I'll go into what that acronym means in a second. Results are now available from half of those public water sources that they've been testing. From those, and by right now they're testing any water supply that goes to a population of over 10,000 people. Of them, 20% of again those bodies that have been tested have reported concentrations above what state regulations allow. PFAS is known as a forever chemical I'm not even gonna to try to pronounce this word. Um, polyfluoroalkyl, like polyfluoroalkyl. That's as good. That's that's good enough. PFAS have long been used in everything from nonstick pans to water repellent clothing. They have been linked to cancer, compromised immune systems, and a range of diseases. Now to be considered too high a level, even though I don't like this because it's going to make people think it's fine, is 20 parts per per trillion, which is roughly the size of 20 grains of sand in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Just that little amount is enough to be seen as dangerous. And again, 20% of the bodies of water that we've tested here in Massachusetts have found this. However, there are still some communities here in Massachusetts that are putting out or allowing people to drink this water. And I read the list in the TikTok. Let me do it here as well. Among the communities still delivering water with the elevated PFAS levels are Acton, Ayer, Dudley, Easton, Holbrook, Natick, Randolph, and Wayland. So if you live in one of those communities, you may want to get your city manager or if you have a mayor or if you have a selectman board on the phone and say what the hell is going on with the drinking water. Because that's part of the scary stuff is when our, I mean, this has been happening here in Boston. It's been happening across Massachusetts. We just went over. It's been happening across the country. Everyone most notably knows Flint. But when our infrastructure starts to fall, because we've just neglected it for decades, to the point where now it's not safe to drink the water, that's when you start really entering that failed state category. So if you're definitely part of those towns, reach out, start drinking bottled water if you can afford it, get a filter, again, if you can afford it, and Mm -hmm. raise hell and tell your community what the hell's going on. All right, and now, for a little dessert, we'll call it. Because this, I saw this morning, and I've had three friends message me about it, so let's just quickly talk about it. Wuhan lab staff went to hospital before COVID-19 outbreak was disclosed. Now, this is a... I mean, the specific article I'm reading is insignificant, but the Wall Street Journal on Sunday went into a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report which is saying that there was a few people at a, the Wuhan Institute of Biology lab who was, who was sick in 2019. November of 2019, before China announced its pandemic, its emergency. Now, this is all part of a growing, as they say here, a growing body of evidence that supports the lab theory. The lab theory being that the coronavirus stemmed not from a wet market, but from a secret, or I guess not so secret, Chinese laboratory, either deliberately or not deliberately accidental there are i think at least four red flags that should pop up in your mind about this wall street journal article the first is it is published in the wall street journal which is most certainly a conservative to right-leaning publication Now, they also do good reporting, but just to see that, you log that in the back of your head. If this was published in the New York Times, I would have said the same exact thing. But still, Wall Street Journal. Okay. Who is the source in this? A U.S. intelligence report. And now, if that doesn't cause a red flag for you, I really don't know what to say. Because the idea that our U.S. intelligence is trustworthy, Is accurate, is laughable. Especially when it's not like an individual just saying we have a document where someone there says that these people were sick. And even within the document, it does not say that that there's proof that it had that these people were sick with COVID, just that there were people at the lab who were sick. So we have Wall Street Journal. We have an undisclosed US intelligence report, which is laughable if that is your one and only source. The third is the timing. This is being released ahead of the WHO convening to decide what they should do in continuing an investigation into this outbreak. Because the WHO, and I'm going to say China, even though I don't know what exact agency they did it with, did a joint study in March that basically said it is highly, 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 highly improbable, unlikely, that the virus escaped from a lab, and it is much more likely, mostly because we've seen it happen before, that this stemmed from a wet market. A wet market is where animals, sometimes still alive, sometimes dead, that normally do not engage with each other in the larger ecosystem are brought together at a market. And because these animals, which again, are not used to encountering one another, can sometimes spread diseases to each other, which they're not used to having, and they then come into contact with a human, normally a pig seems to be like the intermediate or the gateway animal. And so that was, the, that was the third thing, is this is coming at a very politically timed moment, which is right before the WHO meets again to discuss, do we need to continue looking into this? So we have Wall Street Journal, conservative publication. We have their only source being an unknown and unnamed U.S. intelligence report. You have the very convenient political timing of when this is being released, And then, fourth and finally, it fits into what is a very obvious narrative of anti-China sentiment. Of not trying to create an actual conflict, because we would get wiped, or at least the world would get wiped in an actual military conflict with China. But, having a foreign enemy, having a reason why we need to increase defense spending, having an outside threat... You see the Biden administration doing it. You saw the Trump administration doing it. It's always very convenient to have an outside threat. And so when you have those four things all coming together, at no time should you then look at this and say, this is real evidence that it came from a lab. And just for fun, I'll go a step further. Let's say it did come from a lab. Again, even... Outside of all the ridiculous reasons why I just illustrated, they would still then not use this as some sort of an international, oh, we need to all have higher standards for lab testing. Maybe we shouldn't be in this conflict with one another to look into bioweapons. The USSR was manufacturing anthrax that either accidentally or on purpose got out in a community and killed tens of thousands of people. We here have continued to study biological weapons and experimented on our own populations. We also had something to do with that whole anthrax scare after 9-11 that everyone seems to have just pretend that didn't happen. But that is not how this would be used if this hypothetical existed that it did escape. It would be used as China must pay. We must do something about China. So, again, because of all the red flags I illustrated earlier... This is still in the ludicrous element side of things, but if it is going to be used as a weapon to basically continue to kill the planet and maintain the status quo, just keep that in mind. But yeah, I'm still calling horseshit. Let me read real quick. Someone is yelling about pigs. (laughs) Um, All right, so now I'm going to transition to a video portion. Now, the TikTok people, you're not going to be able to see this, but you should still be able to hear it. So let's, let's see what happens. But actually, be right back. Ah, okay, you can watch me do this. I don't think what I wanted to do worked. No, it did not, but that's okay. That's why I would soft launch, people. Give me one second. All right. So, and we are back. Music by my good friend Ryan Scalley. Thank you to him. Mirror Cult. And what we have here, the Boston Mayoral Candidate Forum on Energy and the Environment, which happened earlier today. I sped through the first half. We're not going to get through all the segments I wanted to. That's okay. But first, we're going to start off with some funny stuff, just for fun. This whole forum is worth watching. Obviously, I can't do that for uh, a live show. But so they're right now going around talking about everyone's climate policy. And now listen to John Santiago get his question.
1: who are deeply, deeply impacted, and that means our community, poor communities of color in particular are at the table and have a front seat uh, to this work and that they are driving the agenda. That is the work that is already underway as mayor of Boston, and I look forward to the residents and advocates in this space moving forward. Thank you again.
2: Thank you. Uh, uh, Rep. Santiago. Uh, thank you, David. Oh, and, uh, I get the, you the right timing. That hosting happens. This important forum. Uh, as someone who grew up in underserved neighborhoods and who still provides medical care for patients who have fallen victim to the public health consequences. Questions? You'll each have one minute to respond. Mayor Janey, uh, the Green Ribbon Commission calls for the city to cut 50% of its emissions by the end of this decade. How far along are we now? And can you guarantee as mayor that we'll achieve that goal? And if so, how would we do that?
1: We have to continue to reduce our carbon footprint, make sure that we are building our capacity in terms of renewable energy, and we have to make sure that we are moving uh, many more. I don't want my kids. I don't want any of our
2: new climate law calls for. You've also, thank
0: you. All right, well, we don't get to hear him make fun of John Santiago, but it was basically that John Santiago doesn't have an environmental policy page. But now let's actually hear from Michelle Wu answer a question about her.
2: Councillor Wu, you've, appro- you've proposed achieving carbon neutrality for the city by 2040. 10 years before the Green Ribbon Commission, the city's climate action plan, or the state's new climate law calls for. You've also proposed a net zero municipal footprint by 2024. First, can you tell us what that means and how uh, uh, how do you propose achieving both goals without overburdening taxpayers?
0: Before we listen to Michelle's response to that, listen to the, end, the entire framing of that question. It began with, basically, Michelle's policies are... A decade ahead of what the state's commission says was necessary and then ends it with and how are you going to do this without burdening taxpayers basically setting it up that she has a rushed policy and before you can do anything inv- involving climate justice you must make sure that it doesn't burden the taxpayer i even i i don't know how she responds to this but let's see
1: can't afford to aim for that long-term goal. We know that if the entire world gets our emissions under the right threshold by 2050, instead of sooner than then, we'll have just a 50-50 chance for the planet to remain livable given all of the, the cycles that will, the tipping points that occur. I don't want my kids, I don't want any of our kids and grandkids to have just a coin flips chance at survival in this city and on our planet. So we need to be as aggressive and ambitious as possible. It's about electrifying any everything, cleaning the sources of electricity, and then ensuring we're changing our land use patterns to match that. Boston has to start with what we have at hand, completely retrofit our own city buildings, a huge footprint with city hall itself that we've already started plans to think about energy efficiency and how to reduce those emissions, get solar panels up, ensure that in our new permitting, we're not allowing buildings to go up that we'll have to force to retrofit in just a couple of years from now. We have to be as aggressive as possible to think about the long-term plans for our city because the impacts are already here.
0: All right, that was actually, that that was pretty good. Um, I I wish we hit harder the main point, which is that, all of this saves us money, and so if the the framing of the question is how expensive it is, what you have to just get through to people is that the cost of doing nothing is more and obviously that 's not a line I invented, but you got to flip the framing that this all saves money not only does it increase life expectancy, healthier people healthier planet, but it also saves us money because what we 're doing is going to be so. Destructive to the environment and to our health that the cost of doing nothing is vastly greater Let's see who else has and any good this is good
2: Called so. for establishing a conservation core. Can you tell us what that would do? How many people you envision it would include and how much you expect it to cost the city?
1: Thank you for the question, and the goal of this is, of course, to realize the fact that there is greater investment from both the state and the federal government with respect to our response to climate and making sure every neighborhood is resilient in the face of it, and making sure that, of course, jobs and other things are available, particularly in our environmentally and communities. So the Conservation Corps is an idea of being able to actually bring together folks, and there's still time to figure out what the investment would be, and frankly, we should have all the investment that is necessary, but bringing together folks with the hopes of not only creating jobs, but also looking at the metrics we use to track some of these environmental injustices in communities, air pollution led, and responding with solutions that combat it. And so how do we respond by creating jobs, creating opportunity, making sure that communities, particularly communities of color, are included in the conversation? This is designed to be inclusive and one strategy to get us there. I don't know where I am on time because it's in the chat. Um, But I will also add, you know, I live in Mattapan. I was shocked to learn, for example, some of our climate maps did not include my neighborhood of Mattapan. So this is supposed to do that, but also, of course, everything in my plan centers communities of color.
0: Thank you. Chief Barrett. All right. We're going to leave it at that. Um, There's definitely some more to this that I'll probably play tomorrow. But outside of minor tech difficulties, I now have to go back to see if any of this got recorded or saved. So thank you to the people that came on for the fun experimental elements of this soft launch. But, yeah, I'm excited to try to do a nightly show, and we'll see if people like it. If not, I'm probably going to do it anyway. But thank you for listening and taking part. If you have any notes, send them my way. The TikTok people, if you have any uh, comments, concerns, uh, send them my way. Tomorrow, I'll do a little bit more of a Q&A part Uh, for the TikTok people. I know you're used to that. Uh, You can come by tomorrow some point between 9 and 10, and uh, maybe I'll game a little bit too. I'm going to try not to do both simultaneously. And for the Facebook, YouTube, Twitch people, thank you, subscribe, like, and share.